Welcome to another episode of Culinary School Stories, the weekly podcast that is dedicated to sharing the stories of people around the globe whose lives have been influenced, impacted, touched, and or enriched, for good or for bad, from their culinary school experience. Hi, my name is Colin Roach and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. You are an important part of this show where we ask the question, what's your culinary school story? So now, without any further delay, let's meet today's guest. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening in today to another episode of the Culinary School Stories podcast, a proud member of the Food Media Network. My guest today comes to us from on the other side of the globe, where he has almost 40 years in the food service industry. Well known in his country, he was one of the first and youngest chefs to be invited to cook at the James Beard House in New York. He started his career as a humble kitchen helper at the age of 12 and is now a successful executive chef who mentors and uh, helps others and gives back to his community as well as the industry. And this is just part of his culinary school story. So now let's meet today's guest, Australian chef John McFadden. John, welcome to the show and a big thank you for coming on and sharing your culinary school story with the listeners. Hi, thanks Colin. Great to be here. Well, first, I guess we should tell the audience, uh, we're across the world here. So in, in where I am at in Palm Beach, Florida, it is Sunday night around 6.30 p.m. And I believe it's Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. where you are, John, in Australia? Yeah, correct. As you're having dinner, I've just finished breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so Culinary School Stories is really, truly a global podcast. Fantastic. Now, I'd like to start out... Uh, at the beginning, and have you share with the listeners how or when you first knew that you wanted to be a chef and how you wanted to get into this industry? When did that first uh, influence happen for you? Yeah, most certainly. It actually started very early on. Um, I was only 10 years of age, um, and I had an interest in, in cooking. Um, unfortunately, and people are going to laugh when they hear this, my mum wasn't a very good cook, <laughs> but I survived to tell the story. But um, now the good thing is, you know, what, what really interested me uh, with food is that it's something that we do every day. You know, it doesn't matter what country you're in, whether it's one meal a day, three meals a day, or five meals a day. It's one of the few careers you can literally pick up and take anywhere um, without having to establish a database of people or your own business. Um, and that's what really spiked my interest, I guess, so early on was the opportunity of travel. Um, and learning just different cultures and cuisines. I found that quite exciting. Awesome. Now, in this country, the basic, uh, the, the most popular path to becoming a chef is to, is to probably go to culinary school. You know, they go for two years for an associate's degree, four years for a bachelor's degree, and they get there, and then they go out and they, you know, perfect it in the, in the ranks and work their way up through. But I, I understand that you went through more of the European model, or apprentice model, and I wonder if you could start right out by explaining what that is, what it entails, because I know a lot of listeners over here don't really understand uh, what that is and how it compares to the culinary school as they know it. Yeah, certainly. Um, obviously, over the years, the, the apprenticeship scheme has changed quite dramatically. Um, <clears throat> I finished school at the age of 15. Um, to get an apprenticeship, all I needed was a pass in English in my school certificate, not my higher school certificate. So I finished school in year 10, not year 12. Um, but that enabled me, once I had that certification, to then go to TAFE. 
TAFE at that stage over here was um, it was a four-year term. So that was one day a week at school and four days a week in the working establishment. <clears throat> Back then we had a, um, a terminology called indentured, an indentured apprentice. And what that actually meant was that if a business went belly up, that business had to find you another job. You, you weren't left without a job because the business traded insolvent. Um, and I must admit, to get a job in the mid-80s, it was difficult. It was really hard. Um, obviously, since the mid-80s to obviously now 2020, um, the apprenticeship scheme has changed quite a lot. Obviously, um, students now can get access to certain certifications at high school um, through work, work placement, and then they can get a taste of industry and early certification as a stepping stone um, into a hospitality career. So you tend to find now that, you know, I think the term, the apprenticeship term now is about three years, um, and one of those years sort of tends to start within the high school program. Okay. And so when they're out working, they're actually learning the skills, and then when they're in the school part of it, that's when they're learning like the uh, costing, the menu planning, the business parts of it? Yeah, there's um, there was a program that I've fostered here um, I have for like last sort of 10 years, and that is it's the transition between school and workplace. So I've adopted a program where you get, you know, high school students that are interested in hospitality, obviously studying that at school, um, and they come out for work placement, normally at a, a two-week period a year, um, and they get full access to a commercial kitchen, chopping, dicing, cooking, all the, all the basics of um, cookery. And then obviously you fill in a report at the end of those two weeks um, that helps go towards their assessment in, in cookery in the high school program. Um, and that also accommodates and assists them on the other side when they go to step into uh, the working environment. If they wish to pursue that further, then those accreditations are, are already underway. Great, great. So take us back to your Apprenticeship. No, it's changed a little bit, but you were four days. Tell us where you were and what you were learning at that time. And then what kind of take us through the day when you were at school, when you're at TAFE. What did you do when you checked in? Was there other students? Was it a typical sit at desks type of thing with a teacher up front? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I started, I started my apprenticeship in a Chinese restaurant that sat 500 people. I was the only Westerner in the kitchen. So it was quite a learning curve <laughs> for me. Um, but the interesting thing back then was my TAFE day, although, although it was paid by the employer, it, it was also deemed a day off for me. So I technically worked six days a week with my TAFE day being a day off, which was a Monday. So I used to, to get to TAFE, I wasn't old enough to drive, so I had to catch a train. Train took me about an hour and a half to get to college. Wow. Um, so that's each way. So that's a three-hour round trip. So the day would start out, um, you would do an element of theory and you do an element of practical. So prior to going to college or to TAFE, you'd have your lesson plan, obviously the week before, and then you would lesson plan that out. You would do a costing analysis of what you were going to prepare that day. You'd have the theory side. Um, so you'd have like a two-hour session in a class and then you would step into the cookery kitchen and do the practical side of, of, of cooking. And 
the way the TAFE program was here when I went through, we started with the basics. And, and the basics were primarily, you know, day one in the kitchen, you know, there was inspections of your fingernails, how sharp your knives were, make sure your neck and cheek was tied properly. Um, and then it was basic vegetable cuts. And that led into soup stocks and sauces. And then we progressed through a learning curve from knowing the basic vegetable cuts and then primarily their uses in other, other forms. Um, and then it went into butchery and bakery and fish and so on and so forth. So, you know, those learnings were fantastic. And sort of back in the mid-80s, I guess the European dominance here in Australia was very high. Like we, we had very few Australian head chefs. And if you look at hotels, it was all the Swiss, the Austrians, the English, the Germans, the French. There was every nationality but a very, very low presence of Australians. Um, obviously, times have changed over you know, 30, 40 years. Um, so it's probably fair to say, after I stepped out of the Chinese restaurant two and a half years, I went and worked in a French fine dining restaurant in a hotel, which was, was, all, was all French. Um, and I was primarily, from there on, trained by Europeans because that's who dominated the kitchens here back then. And were they the instructors at the school as well? Europeans? Yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. Like at the school, um, one of my head teachers was Harry Rainbow. He was a big rotund Englishman and he'd scare the life out of anybody. <laughs> you know, here we are, a bunch of, you know, basically kids that have left school and, you know, it's quite daunting walking in and seeing, you know, a guy that could bellow down at you and, you know, sort of set the platform pretty firmly. Um, yeah, and there was. So there was a lot of Germans and Austrians at, at TAFE. Um, and, and probably a small handful of Australians. So on Monday after you finished, that lesson plan was like your homework. You would do that during the week, and then the next Monday, turn that in, get a new one. And the same time, they would be testing you on skills that you should have learned that week at your job. Correct. Yeah, that's right. So the the thing was for me, and where my learning, and where I had to push myself was because you were learning French traditional cookery and techniques. I was going back to work in a Chinese restaurant using cleavers and wood blocks and rolling spring rolls. So I had to go home. I used to have Sunday off. Monday was my TAFE day. So on Sundays, I'd be practicing what I was cooking because it was the only chance I got. You know, I wasn't going back to the workplace dicing, you know, Brinoir vegetables or Julienne this or Macedoine that. And I'm like, well, you know, and, and the funniest thing is when I went to TAFE, there was one day, I, you know, I only used my knives once a week and that was at TAFE because in a Chinese restaurant, we we're using cleavers. Yeah, and, and a bit like a cleaver, they come in different shapes and sizes for different techniques and methodology. Whereas, you know, a cook's knife and paring knives and boning knives have the same principles. And I was slicing myself to pieces at TAFE. So I went the next week and I pulled out a cleaver and the teacher freaked. He said, what are you doing? I said, no, I'm using a cleaver. This is what I use every day at work. And he goes, but it's not the right knife for the right job. I'm like, mate, back in the Chinese restaurant, this is the right knife, trust me. The only knife, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so the other students would have a little advantage because they would leave on Tuesday, go to their job, practice all week, come back, you're doing very well. And here you were like, you know, got four days away from it and had to, had to relearn it all. Yeah, exactly right. So it was very hard in my working environment because it was a different cuisine. It wasn't. It wasn't French. It, I wasn't. I wasn't practicing any of it. So, 
you know, I had to take the extra step or the initiative to practice at home. And the good thing at TAFE back then is that all our lesson plans were mapped out. So I could tell you in three weeks' time what we were doing. And that was great because, you know, the opportunity it gave a student or an apprenticeship like me is that I could practice until my heart was content. But you had others that just woke up on the day and had no clue of what their lesson was. You know, and that it was it was quite amazing. So, you know, I was quite fortunate in that respect that, you know, I could plan ahead, I could practice at home. You know, mum and dad were the best guinea pigs in the world. Okay. So it was, it was fantastic. Now I know you did a little uh, restaurant type thing or pop up restaurant with your with your mom and dad. You used to cook for people uh, on your on that day. Yeah, it was it was it was quite funny um, because obviously at the Chinese restaurant, you know, um, the way it was sort of set up is that we used to do a lot of ten course banquets, you know, for larger groups. And so what I would do at home is get mum and dad to invite friends over and it'd be like fifteen or twenty at a time. We charge them five bucks each. Um, just to help cover the costs of, of food. Um, and then I'd cook for 20 people at like the age of 13 and 14. Um, and mum and dad loved it because, you know, they had free entertainment for the night <laughs> and lots of food and, and I got to cook and make a massive mess. You know? They so, were probably pretty popular in the neighbourhood too, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was great. It was, a good, it was a good learning curve for me because, it, you know, it, it's about prioritising, it's about timing, um, you know, and getting food up all at the same time for that, that amount of people. And, you know, I sort of taught myself in that regard, you know, domestic environment as opposed to a commercial environment. Sure. Now, I'm guessing the curriculum, the learning should be coordinated with the property you're working in so that you can be practicing that. Now, were those properties, did they pay you? Did you were you employed at the time? Or was that part of the schooling? Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. So <clears throat> to go to TAFE, you had to have a full-time job when I went. So, you know, they would technically pay you for going to TAFE as part of your learnings. Um, so technically the way it should work is that you work in the establishment four days a week and one day a week is your TAFE day and then you're two rostered days off. But in my case with the Chinese, it was um, I worked, well, I worked five days a week, my TAFE day, and I had one day off. So I worked, I worked with them for just on two and a half years then we had a property open up at Terrigal on the Central Coast and it was a five-star property. So I put in an application to go there. It was the first five-star property of its kind. Um, I started there and landed a job in a French fine dining restaurant. So I went from making spring rolls to turning vegetables. It was, <laughs> it was quite a step up. Now that apprentice program was the two years you did that, but then there was an additional two. Is that is that how I understand it? Uh, so the, the whole the whole four year duration is, you, you know, obviously you start off as a first year apprentice, then you go to second, third, and fourth. You tend to find the last year of your apprenticeship is you're in the establishment full time, so it's five days a week. All your TAFE and studies are finished, but then you spend a year full time in the restaurant, and then you know by default once you hit your anniversary date. Um, Back then, then you, you got your you know, apprenticeship papers signed off and you know, you're, you're a qualified chef. So when you're doing this last year and stuff, is the chef or someone grading you in class? Or are they telling you what you're, you're deficient at and trying to help you along so you can get those? Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the, luxury, the luxury that I did have 
is that I finished my last year and a half in a French fine dining restaurant. So sort of back to front, if you probably best put it, is I learned all the learnings I should have learned at the end where I should have been doing them at the beginning. But although that I pushed myself at home on my day off to, to learn those and study those, I was putting them fully into practice in my last year and a half. Um, by the time I finished my apprenticeship, I was actually on the, I was running the fish section um, in a French fine dining restaurant. Obviously, yeah, when an apprentice comes in, normally I either start on larder, the cold section, um, or the entremetier, which is like vegetables and garnishes and stuff. Um, I started off as the entremetier. Um, I, I did a bit of work on larder and pastry. And then in the last year, I finished running one of the main sections, being the fish section, fish and sauces. So, you know, to finish, to have a fourth-year apprentice running a section in a fine dining restaurant is probably very rare to see today. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you do some uh, mentoring with some schools, now culinary schools. You're affiliated with some, Cordon Bleu there, a few of the other ones. Mm -hmm. How do you see that in comparison to the apprenticeship program as to the culinary schools that you see now? Is What is the pros? What is the cons? And do you have any opinion on that? Yeah, no, it's 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 a really hot talking point here at the moment. Um, you know, obviously, technology has changed a lot over the years. Um, some can argue for better or for worse. Um, I'm I'm a bit old fashioned. I still like the old textbook style of things because it, it actually forces you to stop and focus and listen. Um, you know, the, the flip side for me with technology is that we're in a world of scrolling. So we. It, it, you know, I sort of question how much information we actually physically stop and take in. Um, and the apprenticeships change, you know, like to, to ask, you know, my traditional training days of all the basic cookery cuts and methods um, and how much that's drilled into people now. Because it, it, at the end of the day, you're cooking, you know, we can go around the world globally and we always end up in the same place with food. You know, something new will come, but we go back to the grassroots, the old-fashioned, whether it's slow cooking, robust flavours, you know, we've jazzed it up here or we've tweaked it over there. Um, at the end of the day, the principles are all the same. Sell the, sell the, sell the cutting techniques. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I think it's quite an interesting place now um, in, in their lessons and their learnings. That For me, they're probably learning things now that I believe they can afford to learn in a couple of more years' time. You know, a couple of years ago, I had um, an apprentice come and see me. I was in the kitchen. I said, oh, what did you learn at TAFE the other day? Oh, we're doing train the trainer. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You're being trained. So explain it to me. And, and it's those kind of things is that I didn't become a train the trainer until, God, I've been qualified for a couple of years, and then I became the train-the-trainer of the kitchen. But that took quite a few years to learn the lessons of train-the-trainer because the way people learn through whether it's communication, whether it's through physical or actions, is very different. And everyone's level of learning differs from each other. Um, and how you actually gauge and quantify that when you're only an apprentice learning yourself sort of raises a few questions for me as to, well, look, does, does little Jimmy need to learn that right now or can he or she learn that maybe in a year or two's time? Because for me, you know, if someone can cook food in the kitchen, fantastic. I can develop all those other skills for them and with them. 
Yeah, but if we can't get the fundamentals of basic cookery correct in the first instance, then we're heavily on the back foot. Yeah. Yeah, I see a lot of the freshmen that come to our school and they want to learn sous vide and they want to learn molecular gastronomy. And it's like they haven't even learned how to mm. use knife cuts yet, you know, sharpen a knife. So it's like they're kind of getting ahead of themselves. Yeah, 100%. And, 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 and the funny thing is, and, and I think we need to, to understand and respect, obviously, the generations have changed. Yeah, and the, and the younger generation now, they, you know, it's, it's quite immediate. It's like, I need it now. And it's like, that's all good and well, but it's like a little kid. You've got to crawl before you walk. You don't walk before you crawl. And the chances are you're going to fall over. And the thing is, that's fine. People will fall over. But it's how you pick yourself up and then take your next step. You know, are you stepping forward or are you going to take a step back? Because the, the thing that's important for me is that in learnings of life or learnings in the kitchen, we all make mistakes. It's just it's, it's a part of life. But what's more important is what we're going to do tomorrow to make sure we don't repeat the same mistake. And that's really valuable to me because at the end of the day, you know, there's no destination in cooking. It's about the journey. It's about the learning. Like, God, I've been doing it for nearly 40 years. I'm still learning things from, from people in industry, new technologies. It's always evolving. It's, it's live. It's, it's moving. And, you know, for me to sit here and say, oh, well, you want to learn sous vide, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's make sure we can pan fry the fish first before we go and put it in a water bath. And at what temperatures does it congeal and all these other applications and crispy skin? And let's learn and develop all those before we sort of jump straight into the water bath. Yeah, I agree. So when you do your mentoring now, what kind of advice do you give to these students or even someone that wants to get into this industry? What would you tell them and what, how would you advise them or what should they know before they even start that journey? Yeah, certainly. Um, look, like any industry, it's rewarding. But it's, you know, and you're in control of your own destiny. The world's your oyster, literally. Um, but you've got to have goals and they've got to be realistic. You know, it's, it's no different to an athlete. You know, they're out on that track practicing, running, running every day for a personal best time. That's their goal. It's like being in a kitchen. I could never imagine in my career that I would have had some of the roles that I've had and been a part or overseen the size of the teams that I've had when I was 15 years of age. At 15, I was, you know, I was quite shy. I was very timid. I wasn't very outgoing. Um, and I found a massive confidence in food and my ability. But that's taken a long time to get there, you know. It hasn't just happened. And, you know, there's no hurry. There's no hurry to get to where you're going. You've, you've got to enjoy it, you know what I mean? Like, you know, to move up through the ranks from an apprentice, even into a head chef's position, that took me over 12 years. But now I've got, I'm seeing young kids come into our industry and don't get me wrong, very talented, but from a people management perspective, I sort of question if they're not jumping into roles too early without having the experience of people management, business acumen, um, people's well-being mental health there's a lot of things to take on now it's not there's a lot more to than just cooking food and making it look good on a plate it's 
Yeah, there's, there's a business at stake also. Yeah, I, I teach a cost control menu planning, the business part of it. And I always tell the students, you know, you'd be the best chef in the world and still go broke. 100%. And you need to understand the business part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, I'll tell you a very quick story. Um, <clears throat> I was group chef of a, um, a quite large property. We had multiple businesses, probably about seven or eight. I had head chefs in all of those. And Fantastic chefs. They, they could cook amazing food and pump out incredible services. But when it came down to stock management, stock hold, um, turnover of stock, that was a different story. It was, you know, I had to sit down and coach and manage head chefs in the business on how to manage a par level. You know, we would do a stock take on a Monday morning after the trading week. And there'd be, there'd be seventy or $80,000 worth of food stock on hand. Now, our purchases for the week would be 40000 But we come to a Monday and have twice the amount of stock on hold than what we're purchasing. So when you've got that kind of cash sitting on the shelf, it, it, you sort of start questioning what does the wastage look like? What does the spoilage look like? Are we utilising? How fresh is the food? So I had to work um, very hard with, with that particular site to help move the stock on, manage our par levels. Like we can order six days a week. Um, and what was an acceptable par level? Well, the good news about that is that we dropped it by $60,000. And that food didn't go in the bin, we sold it. <laughs> so yeah. but the stock hold or the value of that stock on a Monday was down to about $22,000. We're still ordering our 44000 a week. So in, in collectively, you know, we still had... Um, more frequent turnover, but just less stuff on hand. And that's that, that's just another model of the kitchen in regards to financial management awareness. Now, typically, where would they where would they have learned that? Would they learn that in the school part, or that's on the job from another chef? Or yeah, well, Colin, that's that is an amazing question. You know, I've come through kitchens where it's all just just get on the pans and cook and cook and cook. You know, and then you know. I never knew, no one taught me about HR, human resources. Nobody told me that, you know, I had to manage people's egos and outbursts and, and I'm like, oh, God, okay, I thought I was just here to cook food. And Yeah, psychology. Yeah, exactly right, you know, and you're dealing with, you know, quite intense circumstances at times um, and there is no learnings for that. It's, it's it, you know, for me when I came through the kitchen, you know, I – I was trained by Europeans. They screamed, they shouted, they threw things. You know, you just hope they didn't hit you. Yeah. Times have changed. They've changed dramatically. But I never learned through TAFE those learnings because that's that's all I knew. That's and that's how I was being taught. Do I agree with those disciplines? Well, God no. Has it shaped who I am? Hundred percent. You know, and I've taken a little bit of each of those. Would I want to treat somebody like that? God no. Because they'd probably throw a pan at me. <laughs> so, um, and, I, and I'm not the screaming, shouting kind of type. So it's, um, yeah, the ergonomics and dynam dynamics of, of people management have changed a lot. And, you know, kitchen culture, you know, there's a big push here at the moment about mental health. Um, you know, burnout, hours, pressure, stress, drugs, alcohol, you know, and it's about balance. And everyone's like, oh, it's easy for you to say. It's like, well... Everyone's got a voice also. 
unless unless you use your voice and you're not heard, then people won't hear you. And if you've got a good employer or a good boss, then you should feel very comfortable going to them and having a conversation um, and, and keeping it real. Mm-hmm. You talk about the industries changing. Maybe you could speak to males and females because at once it was male dominated. And how do you see that changing in the modern day? Yeah, look, it's you know I think we can all agree for for quite some period it's been a very heavily you know male dominated industry, um, and it's cha- it's changing a lot. It's nice to see a lot more female presence in in key positions and senior positions. Um, a couple of years ago, when I was doing some work for a hotel group. I had this girl in the kitchen. She was a, um, a sous chef, second in charge, and we went externally to recruit a head chef. Head chef came in. Unfortunately, after six weeks, I had to move him along. Um, you know, and this you know, the girl that I had as a sous chef. You know, she stepped up. She put her hand up. Said, "Chef, look, I'm happy to do six days a week, whatever it takes, until we get the right person." And I thought, "Wow, that's amazing. Thank you." <clears throat> anyway. We went through the recruitment process and unfortunately we just couldn't find the right candidate. So I, um, I suggested to executive management, I said, look, I think, I think Zoe's got great potential to be a head chef. So long as I can mentor and coach her, like I wouldn't just throw her into the deep end and say, well, geez, I hope you swim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what was really interesting is that we promoted Zoe. I had the support of um, head office. Um, she was put into her very first head chef's role. And what was interesting is the kitchen was male-dominated. Um, Zoe was the only female in the kitchen. And that, tr- that transition for her was a massive challenge because the team didn't accept her being their leader. Um, so it took a lot of work. We obviously changed the culture in the kitchen, <clears throat> excuse me, which had to change. Um, and the good thing is she went on to win restaurant awards. So, you know, kudos to her for... You know, digging deep, the potential is there. And I think that's the big thing in our industry. It's, it's identifying the potential and nurturing it because she had all the attributes, she had the willingness and all the tough times and I would take her away into my office and we'd have one-on-one conversations, you know, from a mentoring perspective. But at the end of the day, she answered all her own questions. It wasn't me telling her what she had to go and do. It's, you know... The hardest part in the kitchen is just taking the time to stop and listen. Just listen to people because you tend to find the answers right there. And that's how you learn. You learn by listening, not by barking instructions all day. You know what I mean? Because nine times out of ten when someone's got something to say, it's important. So, yeah, and she went on to kick big goals. Um, uh, Earlier this year I was approached by um, a group called Women Hospitality and that's um, an organisation that promotes females in the hospitality industry. Um, and I came on board with their program this year to be a mentor. I actually mentor a um, female chef down in Melbourne. And obviously, you know, for the restrictions going on at the moment, so either phone calls, text messages, um, what have you. So we stay in contact pretty much about once or twice a week. So, you know, if she's got any challenges or struggles, um, I've recommended a few books for her to get hold of and have a read to sort of help with her style or her management style or things that she's looking into. And how do they pick the mentor-mentee? Is that something the mentor or the mentees? 
Yeah, well, yeah, well, in some of the programs, I obviously at Kenvale College, I've been a mentor for a couple of students there, and now Women Hospitality. What they do is that you know the board gets all your information and the candidates' information, and they do the narrowing up. So obviously, there's a set of questions for each of you to complete, um, and they try and balance out who um, who can benefit from whom in those circumstances as such, and, and then you get paired. And then you obviously there's a meet and greet session, you know, and you go out and obviously um, find out a little bit more about the individual. Um, and then from there, you know, you set up your sessions where they're weekly catch ups or fortnightly catch ups, and sort of you know see what challenges they're having and how you can help them work through them. Great. And you mentioned books. What what books would you recommend to someone starting out in this career? Uh, came to you? Would you say here's a good book that you should read? Not necessarily the ones you recommended to that chef because she's at a different level. But if someone was listening to this now and just thinking about getting into the career, going off to culinary school, yeah, there's there's a book that I that I always go back to, and it was a book by Charlie Trotter. It's called Lessons in Excellence, and that and that for me was it was a good grounding and insight into Charlie Trotter and the way he treats people within his business. And the thing is for me, whether I'm a business owner or I'm a leader or I'm working my way towards something or through something, it gave me really good insight as to the person that I would like to be. Yeah, and that can that can start when you're a student. You don't have to wait to be the owner of a business to change your habits and your ways. That starts from the very beginning. And as I said earlier, it's about setting goals. And, and when I read that book about, you know, he sits down with his team, he has a meal with them all so he doesn't isolate himself, it's like, well, I want to be a part of that team because that makes me feel good. And if I feel good, my team should feel good. And so there was, there was certain things I took out of that. And so there's another quick, there's another book that's very quick to read, only takes about 60 minutes, and it's Who Moved My Cheese? And, you know, cheese being the metaphor, um, and, and it's about what kind of characteristics and what character do you play in that book? You go and seek and find things. Do you hold back? You know, are you reserved? Do you sit on the fence? And, and I think that was quite a good book for you, for anyone to read. Um, it's quite assertive. And you can, I think you can sort of um, identify which personality or which character you are in that book. And once again, it sort of questions you as to well, which character would you like to be? Because that's up to you. Great. Those are good ones. Now, I know you're an influence to a lot of uh, students and mentors, people you've worked for um, all over. Could you tell us three people that influenced you? They could be, you know, professionally, personally, they could be alive, they could have passed on. Could you tell us three? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, um, I haven't sort of followed like celebrity chefs for, for, for a better term um, in regards to an influence. Um, you know, obviously when I was an apprentice, a, a person I sort of looked up to was Marco Pierre White um, when I was coming through the kitchens. Um, and, I, and to be honest with you, some of the mentors, some of the best mentors I've had are people that I've worked with. Um, you know, one, one was a lady called Carol Silveraja who um, unfortunately passed away about two weeks ago. Um, she... In the late 90s, she took me under her wing um, when I was working for the um, Park Royal Group and I was in an Asian bistro, sat about 180 people. You know, I was sort of in my mid-20s. I was getting a name for myself, but not a big name, but I was being noticed as such. Um, 
Yeah, and there's other, you know, there's other big players in, in the industry and um, always will be. And Carol saw something in my food and my style, um, and that's how the opportunity came up to go to the James Beard Foundation. Um, she loved the way that I used the Asian flavours and the blends, and you know, and she got invited to James Beard. She took me under a wing. She took me, and together we created an eight-course degustation menu. Um, and that, for me, it was an amazing experience. And what I loved about Carol was she was willing to take someone like me that wasn't a named person, it wasn't a big influence in Sydney, and she invested a lot of time in me that she didn't have to. You know? So there was a nice coach in there. I felt, I felt um, pretty impressed that someone recognised my talent, um, and she did a lot with that. And... You know, there was another, another gentleman I worked at at the um, A&A Hotel, which is now the Shangri-La. His name was um, Andy Bantock, um, an English guy. And he was my sous chef. I was second in charge. We had a team of 25 chefs. And um, I remember one day we were in the middle of service and we were getting hammered. We, we must have about 60 tickets on the, on the docket rail, orders going left, right and centre. And then he's like, John, come here now. I'm like, Andy, I said, mate, we're knees deep in this. You know, we're in the trenches. He goes, no, 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 come out here, come out here. I said, well, what's going on? He said, mate, we're going to sit down and have some lunch. I said, mate, you're kidding me. Mate, we're getting hammered in here. He goes, no, 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 it's fine. They'll be fine. And I'm like, and I'm sitting there and I could not sit still. I could not sit still. It's like being pulled out in the middle of a match and it's right in the middle of a match. And he goes, oh, what do you want to eat? I said, I'm going to get indigestion if I eat. I said, I can't. And he's like, no, no, he said, no, it's fine. He said, look, I'm the sous chef, you're my assistant, and if we can't step out in the heat of battle and the team step up, we haven't done our jobs. I'm like, whoa. And it just, the penny just dropped for me just in that one moment. And I was like, Andy, you're absolutely right, 100%, because I could be there at the front, something could happen, but the thing is the team need to step up, and the thing is if we keep accommodating that, they get used to that. So therefore, they'll never have the opportunity to step up. And I just said that, for me, that was a great learning curve for me. And he was also the same guy that promoted me to that position. And then he said, oh, here you go. You've got the keys now. You're second in charge. What are you going to do with them? I'm like, what do you mean? That's all, mate. It's like a brand new Ferrari. You can have the keys. You can put them in your pocket. You can let them rattle around. Or do you want to take the thing for a spin? We'll go and open some doors. Man, I want to take the thing for a spin. So, you know, <laughs> like that there was Andy, Andy sort of made me look at the bigger picture mm-hmm. as opposed to being a piece of the picture. And that and that to me was a great learning to sort of, you know, and I think we all all guilty of stepping too far in and not taking a step back and just having a look at the bigger picture and what part do we all play in that bigger picture? Because I think we can get too absorbed and too consumed in our either everyday goings, our personal life that influences other things. And, yeah, so, you know, I had Mark Pierre White, probably Carol and Andy, um, that sort of taught me some pretty short, sharp lessons, but they were very big on the scheme of things. Great. Yeah, it does great. Let me ask you, what is one common myth about the profession or culinary school or the industry or kitchens that you want to debunk, that it's just not true, but people believe it? Uh, look, I think, I think the hardest one for me here is probably the celebrity status. It's, I wouldn't say, it's not all wits and glamour. It's, 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 it's bloody hard work. Um, but if you're willing to put your head down and keep your bum up, 
yeah, you can make you can make a really good go of it. You can make a name for yourself. So you know, there, there, there's some some people that get to the celebrity status, you know, quite easily. It could be debatable, um, but you know, for me, I think you go in stripes. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit easier cutting those corners, and you're going to become a star. And it's it's. But just because you're on TV doesn't make you an instant star, does it? You know, fantastic chef. <laughs> doesn't it mean you can cook, right? <laughs> no, that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, what do you think is the future of culinary education in our industry? Where do you think that's going to go? Yeah, look, I, I think I think one of the biggest things that's hit, obviously, everybody globally is obviously the COVID-19. Um, and, you know, I, I, deal, I, I deal with a few culinary schools and when, when this first came up in sort of late March, um, it was quite interesting to see the instant, obviously, closure of schools um, and the online presence of engagement. And, and I was speaking to a CEO of um, the Culinary School here, Brad, and they had to quickly flip, obviously, their school lessons into an online program. So for them to initiate that so quickly, it was quite impressive. When, when, when all that happened, I phoned Brad and I said, oh, how's it all going? He said, he just laughed and said, John, this is amazing. I've had the best turnout ever because it was all online. He said, he said, I've had the best attendance out of anything. <laughs> and I just think moving forward, we look at all the real estate and investment we have in buildings and classrooms and, and now you know, through Zoom, through online learnings, it's quite amazing, I think, because we're being forced to do something, um, what that may look like in the future. You know, people are studying a lot more online, like it's just in the comfort of your own home. So I, I, I seriously think, you know, once the world sort of gets back to some sense of normality, um, yeah, I, th- I think learnings and business in general will change quite dramatically in, in time to come. Now, do you think they could do the culinary part doing this remotely? Is that, uh, I know some people are exploring it and some people have even tried it, some schools, we have a few in this country, but uh, how do you see that going? Yeah, look, I think I think the practical side of it is it will be, is challenging. I, you know, for me, I think <clears throat> there's no better presence than being um, live or together in a room. It's, it's very hard if I was to do, say, a demonstration through a video content to see what it looks like on the other side, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So, you know, if you could get 10 students in the classroom or 15 or whatever that looks like, I think those practical lessons need to be done live for the fact that is that you can commentate as you go. You can pick things up. You can educate as you go. You'll see things. And, and, and it's, like, it's like being in a kitchen where you're conducting a service. Yeah, it's very easy. When, you, when you're standing, once again, when you're standing on the outside looking in, you can work out very quickly the dynamics of what's going on. I, I think during trying to do a, um, any kind of cookery through video, it's very, very hard to see all the little detail that's going on. So uh, I'm not sure how that's going to look like going forward. Um, but for me personally, I'd, I'd probably like to be or have all those students with me so I could probably see everything that's going on. I, I just don't know if video content will capture that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the that's the hard part. And I know a lot of them are trying to do it now with less students and, you know, the personal protective equipment and this plexiglass and trying to make it work. But there is value to having that, you know, face-to-face right there. Yeah, one-on-one. One-on-one. Yeah, definitely. Um so what are some other organizations you're involved in that are near and dear to your heart that you're, you know, working through now over there in Australia? 
Yeah, no, no, certainly. Um, I'm involved in quite a few organisations um, and it's something that I encourage obviously students and apprentices to do. Um, it helps you stay connected. It helps you keep up to date with what's happening within industry. Um, and it also allows for some networking opportunities because at the end of the day, um, we all work somewhere and someone knows somebody. So those connections are quite powerful. Um, and it's how you wish to you know, either use your voice or contribute or participate. Some of the organisations that I'm involved in, um, I'm part of the Australian Culinary Federation. Um, I'm actually the secretary for the committee there. Um, and we're just working out, obviously we have chapters in each state in Australia, New South Wales, Victoria, um, Western Australia, et cetera. And we're just looking at doing um, a national vote shortly. So we become one organisation as opposed to mm -hmm. several. Um, I'm also part of Food Service Australia. I'm the National Chairman of Judges for Australia Chef of the Year. Um, and that's a program that's run every year, um, alternatively in Melbourne or in Sydney. So that competition comes up on the 8th of November this year. So we canvass the country for chefs and the top 32 that get sort of screened um, then enter into a three-day cooking competition. Um, so it's quite, it's quite intense and as daunting as competitions are, um, it's also great benchmarking for people to see, you know, obviously there's a lot of camaraderie, um, very fierce competition, and some of the, the calibre of food and meals that are presented in 60 minutes is phenomenal. Um, obviously, women in hospitality, I'm a, I'm a part of, I'm a mentor for their program, which is just coming up to, I think it's been running now for seven months, and that's like a, a year duration. And then I was approached a little while ago to be an ambassador for Star, Star Shell students, which is an anti-cyber bullying platform. So this, this also targets um, you know, school children um, through bullying and certain messages in text that once they go into the program, it can send alert and then they can be sort of assisted in how that, how that gets managed in regards to that content. Also, with, um, I'm part of the Le Cordon Bleu School. I, I help out student assessments. They come along every three months. Obviously, that program's changed of recent because of, obviously, the COVID-19 um, that sort of hit everywhere. LCB, Australian, um, ACF, Food Service Australia. Um, I work on a lot of food panels at uh, trade shows like Fine Food Australia. Um, so, yeah, I'm actively and very heavily involved. I do a few charity events throughout the year, so whether it's cooking for the homeless or donating food or creating a menu. So, yeah, yeah, very heavily involved in the industry because I think, you know, food at the end of the day, it's about generosity and food brings people together. Um, and that's what I love about it. Like the amount of things we do around food between celebrating, commiserating, um, weddings, funerals, the, the whole nine yards, it's, it's just something that brings people together. It's a feel-good thing and I like to feel good. Those organizations sound great. Very interesting. What I'll do is I'll get those uh, websites from you uh, and then part of your sure. bio there, and I'll add those into the show notes. So if anyone is listening and wants to find out more about them, we'll have that information for you so you can uh, look it up and maybe get involved in yourselves. Yeah, definitely. Uh, is there a question I, sh I should have asked that I haven't so far? Is there anything, if you were in my shoes, that you'd want to ask yourself or answer? Uh, I'll lead with a leading question is what food trends are coming out from over there at the moment? Because Australia seems to be adopting, obviously, trends from 
around the globe. So I'd like to sort of know what's the next best thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, There's there's so much. And again, this pandemic has kind of slowed everything down and, you know, restaurants closing and everything put on a halt. But uh, before that, it was, you know, really taking off and more so with um, the ethnic foods. You know, we're seeing more and more of that, you know, Peruvian cuisine, you know, really specific niche type uh, cuisines that are coming out now. Still a lot with the um, farm to table, organic, um, seeing a lot of that, people trying to have their own gardens things for their bees and their microgreens. Uh, so we're still seeing that trend, or at least it was up until this, this, this pandemic uh, happened. And it's also a lot of uh, vegan and vegetarian, you know, more healthy cuisines, less protein. Yeah, plant-based foods. Plant-based foods. Um, so that has really been, you know, big for a healthy point of view too. And it's also, you know, from restaurant tour, it's a good cost effective. You know, it's a Absolutely. lot cheaper yeah. than putting a steak on a plate, you know? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so those are some of them. And the culinary schools are are still, you know, busy. Um, you know, they're, but they're, we, we see a lot of students that are not wanting to necessarily go into the industry. They don't want to be chefs, but they're there for other reasons. You know, we have some journalists. We have people that want to learn about food so they can write about it. We have uh, bloggers and uh, teaching. Teaching's still big. You know, that's we have a, a big high school program, especially here in Florida. It's called Pro Start. You know, so it's uh-huh. part of the National Restaurant Association. It gets them a good career and gets them ready to start in a restaurant without even going on to the college level. But they're a great feeder program into our culinary schools. Mm -hmm. So they come in. They already have a lot of those skills. We actually, we recruit them. Yeah. Um, You mentioned mentioned judging. I do a lot of the judging for these high school competitions too. And it's almost like athletes. You know, we give out scholarships like you would to the best baseball or football player. We give it to the best culinary students so they'll come to our schools, you know. So it's it's a great – it didn't happen when I was in culinary school. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was a trade back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like yeah. a domestic. Now it's like, oh, wow, you're a chef. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so it's really, really crazy changing. Um, well, as we come to our end of our chat today, before we wrap up, is there any last minute advice or guidance that you want to leave to the listeners? Something you want to share? Yeah, no, absolutely. If, if you're interested in um, stepping into a career in hospitality, whether it's front of house or back of house, um, the journey the journey's rewarding. Um, and it's about how much investment you put into yourself and how much investment you put into your career. Because at the end of the day, your destiny is up to you. You, you determine where you want to go, um, but it's what you're willing to put into that to achieve your objectives and your goals. Um, I think it's really important that you do set yourself goals, um, whether they're short-term or long-term, and just check into those um, regularly to make sure that you're on track to achieve those goals. Have fun on the journey because it is fun. Food's exciting. People are exciting. There's a lot of stories that you'll learn along the way. Mistakes will be made. Just make sure that you learn from your mistakes um, and and share them and confide in people, seek advice. And if you are struggling, don't be afraid to put up your hand and ask for help. It's the biggest thing anyone can ask you to do. Never be afraid to ask for help. You get all that right. You'll get great guns. Excellent. Great. Um, I did want to ask you about when you were at uh, school, about your 
toolbox with the metal <laughs> grandfather made it. Tell us that story. Share that story. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. My um, <clears throat> when I was a kid, my grandfather he um he had two jobs, and he bought me my first set of um, chef's knives, and he and they were secondhand. And he bought a wooden toolbox. And on the corners of the box were these metal knobs, obviously, to protect the wooden corners. And I thought, oh, man, this is fantastic. Double latch lock, had a key lock. So this is really cool. Anyway, so I rock up to TAFE on my first day. And the first thing I do is grab my toolbox and put it on the stainless steel bench. Well, man, I tell you what, I got the loudest shout and probably jumped about three feet from (laughs) Harry Rainbow. (laughs) telling me to take that off the bench because I'll scratch the bench and next time I come into the class, make sure I remove all those metal knobs protecting my box. So there you go. I'm day one at TAFE and I'm in the bad books already. (laughs) (laughs) You got to go back and tell grandpa that, hey, you got to take the metal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Pop. Stitch me up. (laughs) Set me up for that one. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. So, what do you? What is your plans now? You, uh, you, you're um, in your future. What are you guys going to do with this after this pandemic? Is it really crushing the industry there? Yeah. Look, I think people people will always want to eat out. Mm-hmm. They either want to eat out or they want to eat in. You know, because but what was really funny when when I was with Alasil, our home delivery and takeaway, it was pumping. You know, like on Mother's Day, one of our restaurants we had five. One of our restaurants did 1,400 covers in takeaway. Wow. One restaurant. You know what I mean? And, that's, and, and that restaurant seats over 200 people. Obviously, we couldn't have the people for obvious reasons. We're still doing 1,400 for home delivery. Yeah. Well, if you've got an average check of $20, right, on 1,400 people, that's not a bad day's trade, really. No. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite phenomenal. Um, you know, we talk about... Obviously, the online platform, home delivery, retail. Retail is obviously booming. So I just, you know, as I said, um, another conversation here is ghost kitchens. You know, you don't need a big space to pump out home delivery and takeaway. So rather than having a restaurant that is, you know, 30% empty that you're paying real estate on, why wouldn't you just have a hole in the wall somewhere and just pump out your home delivery and takeaway and reduce your rent? So there's a lot of those talks at the moment as to, you know, what they'll look like on the other side. And I think the hardest part for businesses here is, you know, now that a lot of people can work from home, you know, all these businesses that have, you know, cafes and restaurants within office buildings, you know, if everyone starts working from home one or two days a week, they're going to lose 30% of their trade. Yeah. So they're going to think, Jesus, what do I do now? Do you know what I mean? Because... They can't survive on that because, if, you know, if there's 3,000 people in a building that all, you know, grab a coffee or two coffees a day, you know, they lose all that. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what the other side of this looks like. Yeah, talking about takeout, I, in this country, at least in this area, they could do some improvements because it's always been, I think, the stepchild. You know, they're, oh, there's takeout, and they don't really pay attention to it as much. But now where everybody was using it, they, they still mess up. You know, they forget hey. something or they don't have the right packaging to keep it hot. And I'm like, you know, you should be focusing. On the product. Yeah, exactly right. It, that's your brand. That's your whole business right now. Yeah. That's your brand right there. Do you know what I mean? If it, if it was if it was edgy and classy and stuff, mate, it, it that sells itself. Yeah. 
Because I was thinking, even in, in, in our culinary school, Johnson and Wales University, I'm thinking we could put a class, you know, an elective class, takeout, you know, just to teach them how do you manufacture that product so that it will hold this integrity and quality until it gets to the customer. And are you going to have an expediter there in the takeout and all of that? Watching it, like you know, put the attention that you would in the restaurant to your takeout. You know, and that's really what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 100%. Right? It's still generating mm-hmm. revenue. Yeah, and especially now, it'll probably be the majority of it as we, you know, continue. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Well, that is just about all the time we have for this episode. And I want to first thank you, John, for coming on the show today and sharing your culinary school story with all of us. We really appreciate your time, your insight, and your honesty. Great. No, thank you. It's been it's been a great pleasure. Um, if anybody wants to follow my journey further, you can see some of my stories through LinkedIn or um, through Instagram. It's, for me, it's about family and food, really. And you know, it's one big community, and I'm glad I could be a part of yours. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks again. I really enjoyed our chat. Bye-bye now. All right. Thanks, mate. Cheers. And a big thanks and appreciation also goes out to all of you, the listeners. We hope you enjoy the show and this episode. You all are a big part of this show, so please let us know what you think. Your comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. You can email them to culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. That's culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. Or even leave us a voicemail at area code 207-835-1275. That's area code 207 207- 835-1275. And if you like the show, we have a big ask of all of you, and that is to share the podcast with everyone you know and to give us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, until our next culinary school story, take care and be well. Bye-bye. Culinary School Stories is a proud member of the Food Media Network.